I'm Alyssa, and this is Born by Accident, and I have a guest here with me today. Her name is Reverend Lisa Beth Ackerman. Ackerman. Can I say your whole name? Okay. And uh, why don't you just tell me or us a little bit about yourself and how you became a reverend? Sure. So I was raised in South Texas, and... Back in the day, families always went to church on Sundays. That was the thing. So I was raised in the church. My mom volunteered there. And it was a fairly important part of my childhood. And as a young adult, I'd kind of put that all to the side. But I really struggled with, what are you going to be when you grow up? Those questions. I mean, it was such pressure in the early 80s. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And um, I had been volunteering with a a church and uh, working with uh, Sunday school classes and all kinds of things. And I'd gone on a retreat. And I just knew at some point during that retreat that what I wanted to do with my life uh, was to work with the church, to be a pastor. So then my next question was, well, what do I got to do to do that? And it was like, oh, I have to go back and finish my bachelor's degree first. And um, so wait, how old were you when you decided that? Um, that you wanted to be a pastor? Early 20s. Wow. Early 20s. Yeah. Okay. Um, I had a very spectacular semester when I was um, first attending uh, my undergrad. I went to Sam Houston State University in Huntsville, Texas which is famous because it's just blocks away from where they do the executions uh, in Texas. So oh my gosh. I got still? A whole, yeah. I got a whole side story with that, but they're still doing them there. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. When they reinstituted the death penalty, uh-huh. the college students, some of the fraternities would go down and have parties just outside of the unit where they do them. So there oh would be- there would be folks who were protesting the death penalty. And then there would be these college students having these raucous parties. And I went to one of them just to kind of try and figure out what was going on to try and understand and think about the death penalty. Cause I had never thought about it before. Uh-huh. And I was horrified at the actions of my fellow students. And so like I wrote off this letter uh, to the Houston Post. At the time, the city of Houston had two newspapers. And so I wrote this letter to the editor. And they put my name in there and everything along with my dorm name. <gasps> so, oh, no! Oh, gosh, that's what they would do. They would put like your street address or whatever. And they wouldn't put your full address. They would just put your street name. And because I didn't live on a street in a house, I lived in a dorm as a college student, they put my dorm name. So suddenly, I was getting letters from prisoners and some of them were monogrammed like they had or the they had engraved like personalized 
stationary because they'd been in prison for so long. And I was just like, oh, gosh, it was a very weird moment. But it fundamentally changed how I thought about humanity and what we do to each other. Were the prisoners like happy that you had spoken up or what? Oh, yeah. They They were flirting with you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Oh, God. I did not write back to any of them. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) It was very weird. Oh, so, but you weren't getting, I thought maybe you were going to say you were getting harassed by people, like people around you for saying something. Okay, good. I'm glad I don't think my fellow students were interested in reading the opinion letters to the editor. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were busy at the bar. (laughs) Yeah, I do. Yeah. And then, so then I fit right in with my fellow students and I was busy at the bar. And um, because the summer between freshman year and sophomore year of college, my biological dad passed away. He had cancer. And I just basically ignored it. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't want to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And so that fall semester, sophomore year, I I flunked everything. <gasps> I had an 0.4 GPA. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so I stopped going to school and I started going back to church. And there was a female pastor um, at the Methodist church where my family was attending. And so I would drive out from my apartment in Houston out to the country, uh, in the suburbs. And I would go to this church and she was just so kind and so gracious. And she didn't say, Oh, you're going to get over it. She didn't say you're going to survive. She didn't say Jesus will fix it. it was none of that. It was just plain Jane. God is love. The church loves you. Let's just go on. Empathy. Yeah, that was it. And so a couple years later was when I had attended this retreat and kind of went, oh, I know. So I think it ties back to that previous experience. And I had to go back and face my failures. So I went back to the same school, but now I was older and I was married and in the midst of finishing up my bachelor's degree, which In the state of Texas at the time, you couldn't get a degree in elementary education. They had a whole different name for what the degree was, but that was what it was. Okay. So I majored, it was special education, elementary education, K through eight, and minored in history. And um, I like redeemed that horrible semester. I still have that framed that that transcript with that one semester followed by the others with kind the of point as a oh four was it point oh point four oh point it's four. like the opposite of a perfect semester you know what though it reminds me of that quote I think it was a I don't know if it was Mary Oliver but I think it might have been but it, you know that quote where it's like one day someone gave me a box of darkness and it took me a while to realize that that too was a gift. Is that Mm -hmm. Mary Oliver? I think so. Yeah. It reminds me of that. Like I would frame that too, I think, and remember like, try to remember the, the gifts it gave you. Cause if, if you didn't go back to church at that moment and meet that pastor, Mm -hmm. I have so many goosebumps right now. (laughs) So I had to finish my bachelor's degree Mm -hmm. and, and then I had a couple kids and (laughs) The marriage took a turn when the man I was married to took a really sharp right turn into like indie evangelicalism Mm. and was just like, you know, the only authoritative scripture is the 1611, 1619 King James, whichever it was. And I was like, no. Um, 
and he had some odd ideas. Um, he wanted me to wear a headscarf in public so that people could see God had put him in authority over me. And I was like, no, <laughs> like nothing in this resonated with the God is love empathy that I had experienced in church previously. So he and I went our separate ways, which is a very short way of explaining a complex situation. Do you have a question? (laughs) I I do. I have a question because someone recently told me and I was like, is this true? Like I can't, I mean, I know the Bible was interpreted and written by, Mm -hmm. but someone told me Shakespeare had something to do with it. Is this real? Yep. Well, it's, it's a common popular myth I thought because yeah. it's a delightful one. Wouldn't we all like to believe that? Because the the King James is very Shakespearean in much of its language. It was a period of time influenced by his authorship. Okay, so it it should be very similar to Shakespearean language. It was written by committee. Um, it's it, there's a lot of really good scholarship went into it. Okay, it was good at the time. I didn't but, mean to derail you, no, but someone fine. just said this to me, and I just nodded and smiled because I didn't know right. whether it was true or not. But it seemed really far fetched to me. I was like Shakespeare. No, but it's in not that. It's not that far off in the time yeah. period, right? So it, it's not un- unusual for people to believe this because the poetry of that period really influenced the other people who were helping to interpret the scripture. Gotcha. It was not the first English translation. Um, and there have been so many other translations since then. Every version of scripture we have today is a translation that someone has had to read and interpret and put their own life's experience on. So some of it is very lyrical and beautiful, and some of it is a little unusual. And some of it's very obscure because nobody knew what the original meant. Right. Um, and so, um, my first husband, needed certainty, needed to have structure. And so someone influencing him and telling him, these are the authoritative things, and this is how you should rule your household, and very Bill Gothard influenced with the the types of, um, you know, the man is the head of the household, and the woman who's, if... Who's Bill Gothard? Oh, Bill Gothard. Um if any of your listeners have watched the shiny happy people, oh, I meant to watch that. You told me yes, I forgot the documentary it on my Amazon notes. Prime. That uh, that really reveals the influence of this man, um, who was not a pastor, had never married, did not have children, but he uh, had these teachings, and he would go around and teach them, and for for men who were looking for something that sounded certain, solid. They latched onto that. And so my first husband latched onto that and he dived headlong into it. And to this day has these beliefs, very evangelical, very patriarchal. I mean, the woman is supposed to submit and the children should be very, very modest. Can I ask sure. what your children's relationship is with him now? They have none. Yeah, that's what I figured. Yeah. That's so my oldest daughter is 30. And when she went off to college, <laughs> oh, the horror, a woman's college in Boston. Oh, no. Wow. <laughs> it's terrible. The oh. fruits of my teaching her feminism. So that was kind of the, it just faded out. He just 
kind of dropped the relationship. And he still had a relationship with my younger daughter, who was 15, 16 at the time. And she had gone on a short term mission trip back to the place where we lived where she when she was two, when she was baptized, and they stayed in the same church. And they worked on people's houses and rebuilt porches and did wheelchair ramps. I mean, it's an it's a good thing. And she met a boy from another youth group. And they started dating, they started going to swing dance classes, and they went camping together. And they were very, very sweet. They would hold hands, but not kiss. And it was unusual for that time. And at the end of summer, her dad contacted her, and uh, she went to have a meal with him. And he just told her that that was wrong, that she needed to give it up, one thing and another. And it was a, it, there's a lot more to that, but it's really her story to tell. So right. I kind of want to honor that. Yeah. Her dad ended his relationship with her at that point, <sighs> which just broke her heart. Of course. The happy side of that that I always like to brag on is that she and that boy are now married. Oh my God. <laughs> They've been together since then and they just had a baby uh, just a few months ago. So I now have a grandchild. And I mean, I couldn't be happier because she found someone who really fit with her. And the two of them are just weird and wonderful. And they embody all of the hippie things I wished I could have done when I was her age. I just, I couldn't be happier for them. In your face, dad. Exactly. (laughs) You know? Um, and I think, you know, my daughters would like to, if they could, have a relationship with their three half-sisters, because he subsequently got married again and has had three more daughters. They're young and still, right? Mm-hmm. They're still young. Yeah. And- um, They might come around one day. You never know. There's yeah. a lot of people escaping evangelicalism mm-hmm. these days, so- that's that's kind of the hope that my daughters hold out is that their sisters will eventually find them. Yeah, I think I have I I have I have some relatives that are young still that I'm just waiting for the clock to tick by. Yeah. It's hard because you wish you could have a relationship now, yeah. but it's a beautiful thing when they do finally. Mm-hmm. Like my, my half sister, who I've talked about a little bit on the podcast on my mom's side. She was, she's 11 years younger than me, mm-hmm. and she was joint custody with my birth mother and okay. her father. And I only saw her in the summers and every other Christmas until I was not even 18, which she was then seven. Yeah. So we had hardly any relationship before I disappeared because I didn't want to hang with my mom anymore. Yeah. So she held some resentment about that. Yeah. Uh, of course, because she had this big sister that disappeared. That disappeared. And she told me yeah. she would make up stories about me to her friends because she, you know, and I didn't, I was so selfish at the time. I didn't yeah. think a thing about what she might have been going through. But that's part of what you have to do. Right. I mean, and it's part of the experience of being an older adolescent young adult is that you do very much. You need to uh, differentiate from your family. So you do, you have to think about yourself. That, yeah, that, and, and, and yeah. But the cool thing is, is now she's, so I'm 43, which makes her 32. Mm-hmm. And she has a, she's married to a wonderful man and they have a baby. And she, like in the most recent years, 
something happened and mm-hmm. now we're building our relationship yeah. and it's the best yeah. family blood family relationship that I have. Yeah. So, well, I've, I mean, when I divorced my first husband, because I initiated the divorce, I was like, this isn't going to go well. If I let, if I just kind of wait for things to happen, I needed to, yeah, I needed to rescue myself and my children. Mm-hmm. And, um, thank you. Yeah. He was using a half of a fishing rod to punish the children. <gasps> um, my younger daughter was just nine months at the time. <sighs> And so I took that with me and gave it to my attorney. <laughs> like, what are you going to do with that? But I, I, I did what I needed to do to get us out. And I provided a way, imperfect as it was, for my girls to have a life outside of the very restrictive religious environment. So I'm glad that I did that. Did you get full custody? No, I still had to share custody with him because it wasn't bad enough. And I wasn't going to wait for him to beat me up to like have bruises and prove that that was not going to happen. So I mean, he shoved me a time or two and it was so emotionally abusive, but you can't file for sole custody based on emotional abuse unless you can prove it. And this was still the eighties. So like, what did I know? Well, and I know like it had to go through your mind, like when you were choosing to divorce do I divorce and show my daughters mm-hmm. that this is unacceptable mm-hmm. and go on on a strong path? Yeah. Or do I stay because if I have to have joint custody well, and they're was, not with was, me, mm-hmm. how do I protect them from this man? That was not a question in my mind. I wasn't, wasn't? going to stay. Good job. That wow. was I was absolutely not going to stay. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't. No. You couldn't live there. What I did was I had to have the conversation early. With my daughters about appropriate touching and inappropriate touching. So they could stand up for themselves. And I learned how every other weekend on the long drive, because it was East Texas, had you driving home to say, okay, so uh, what was your favorite meal that you had this weekend? And like, I left this waffle maker with him because I knew he liked to do breakfasts. And so that I knew they would say making breakfast. And then I'd say... So what was the thing you didn't like this weekend? You know, I was very cautious and like how, yeah, would like thorn. open up these. Yeah, but I would never use those terms. I would right. just like open up the questioning, open-ended questions, let the kids talk. And in the years since, as they have become adults, they have shared that there were things that they did not tell me about. Right. And And I'm sad about that, but it was never... The other Pete, because he lived with some other men for a period of time. So those men never touched my girls. Oh, good. So there wasn't ever anything outside, but he was still, you know, very emotionally abusive. And he did still physically punish them from time to time, the younger one more than the older one. And so they're working through that. They both have really good therapists and I'm happy for them now. Yeah. Well, but the weird thing is. Yeah. How did I survive such a twisted understanding of scripture and this book of a book of books? Really yeah. How did you just not run away from all the religion? Church. <laughs> yeah. Because I knew that the United Methodist Church was nothing like what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. So I went back to what was my religious, not spiritual, but my religious home was this denomination. And um, 
I worked at a period of time for a church as a children and youth director, and the pastor was really supportive and encouraged me to go to seminary. So I moved to Dallas and I went to Southern Methodist University to get my Master of Divinity as a single mom (laughs) with these two kids. Um, Sometimes they came to class with me. So like every now and then in one of my old binders, I will like if they if the the little one wasn't even in kindergarten yet. So like, like, what am I going to do? Right? You know, so here I am in my systematic theology class. And she's like scribbling. And your teachers were cool with it? Yeah. That's amazing. Um, one of my professors um, was Irish, and that's um, fun. He was super conservative within the United Methodist Church, oh. and I'm super liberal, so we were often on opposite points. But he was always so respectful because he approached everything as an academic debate that something good could come from God in the midst of good academic debate. And so I learned a whole different way of disagreeing about things. And it was fun because when I would go to his office during office hours, and if the girls were with me, he offered them these teeny tiny cookies. Um, I think they were called Africa cookies. And they're kind of a, a dark chocolate. And they would have a little tiny cup of tea and a little cookie because oh. this is a very British style. You uh-huh. know? He was great. Um So it took me a long time to get my degree. I think it's a four-year program, and I did it in like five and a half. Um, Which is amazing with two little kids. I know. Um, And I worked for a period of time in churches and really got involved with the groups that were doing things that we consider to be mission. So local outreach. One church that I worked with had a whole dental clinic just for people who are HIV positive. Wow. Um, And they also sponsored a a hospice. And what year is this? That would have been 2004. Okay. That's... Uh, 2004, 2005. And you... Okay. So I'm relating this to where my head was Mm -hmm. at the time. So if I backed up just a few years Mm -hmm. in like 2001 Mm -hmm. or 2000, I was working at a telemarketing place and I had a coworker who is HIV positive. Yeah. And it was my only experience ever with anyone HIV positive. And I was stupid, dumb as rocks at the time, very yeah. naive. And I don't know. And I, I only remember this one day he offered me some of his leftover lunch uh-huh. and I like froze. Yeah. I did not know what to say or right. do. And I just was like, ah, oh, I don't even remember what I said, but I'm sure I could have done it better, whatever it was. Yeah. And this is only three years later, and you're working in a dental clinic. Well, I was working in the church that was adjacent to the dental clinic. But you're was having a lot of interaction. Yeah. yeah. With and there people. was a, a counseling center uh, as part of the church. And yeah. So the, that so the co- level of, I'm just saying though, in that time, the level yeah. of wisdom and compassion you have to have to like not be afraid, I guess. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, yeah. it's, you know, I mean, I, I mean, now, of course, I would never, you know, but I just, at the time, I just was, I was 20 years old, and I was, I was raised in a really bigoted, horrible household, so I just didn't have the wisdom to be the person I would like to be now, but I'm, I'm just thinking of, around the same time frame, here you are working with that population in a whole different way. 
Well, it just, I mean, and they were teaching me. Yeah. A lot of, of course. Time. Yeah. So yeah. Um, there were some people <laughs> in that church that I had met at the seminary because they did a lot of things for lay people's education instead of ordained persons, lay persons. That's the terminology there. Um, but they, there were, there are lay people who are really interested in theological education for themselves. Right. And so I had met some members of this church through that. And I knew that it was a great church that did a lot of wonderful work. And for people that haven't like been involved in the church, mm -hmm. lay people are just average, ordinary people. And ordained persons are people who have been set aside by the church to be pastors. Okay. Uh, to be uh, clergy. So the, the official terminology is lay or clergy. Okay. Um, so at that point, I was a clergy person. Right. Then I, the next thing I did was to work at a church in Galveston. And um, we did a lot of work. We had a Katrina shelter because it was oh, during that time. Wow. And we had a lot of people evacuate. Yeah. And I mean, the, the whole community came together in a beautiful way to help these folks. And the day we closed our shelter, because the last people had finally found a place, they'd found family or found a place to go to. Uh, oh. So the day we closed it, we had scheduled two days later to have a debrief for the whole staff because it was a big church with a lot of staff. And instead, we all had to evacuate because another hurricane was coming. <gasps> and it wasn't bad on Galveston Island itself, but that evacuation was ridiculous. It took... 10 and a half hours to get to my parents' house, a trip that normally took an hour and 20 minutes. And, uh, and that just had to be so traumatic, too, yeah. because just finishing up helping those survivors mm -hmm. and then to yeah. not have the relief for a moment and right. the ability to celebrate that. And now and here's to, another hurricane coming. Like, right. that just had we to be so never, scary. We never had the opportunity to process our feelings about vulnerability. Yeah. And... Also about what it's like to help people through a trauma, you really need to debrief that. Right. You really need to be able to work through that. It's a and, lot. And we didn't. Because you have to be on when you're helping people mm -hmm. through trauma. Like you, it's exhausting. It's a, yeah. And we didn't have time for that. So we evacuated. And what I remember is that the car had a little, uh, had a little, um, Thing that told you the temperature. It was 108. <laughs> oh. Stuck on the freeway. Yuck. With all these people. Yeah. And all I could think about was, well, we put all the delicate things on the second floor so that if it floods, they won't, it won't affect those things. And then all I could think of was, but if the, if we get the wind, the roof will come off and it'll rain on them. And like, so, so like <sighs> I was just doomsday scenario the yeah. whole time. It was not good. What are you going to do? Okay. So just a personal question. Mm -hmm. Having gone through what you had gone through up until that point, because I'm in a space of kind of learning about trauma and yeah. how it affects us and our bodies and affects our brain, do you think that at that point in your life, you leaned more into like the worst case scenarios or could you go the other way? Like not to yeah. say that it's bad one way or the other, but with this hurricane thing, you know, could you think, oh, so so you mentioned maybe the roof will come off and right. the rain will come in. Right. So I I can see um another person I know in that situation may never think of that. Oh. I personally would think of that for yeah. sure. I would think of all of the things that can yeah. go wrong. Well, Is that where you think you were at that point or was it just well, logic? The, the girls things happening? were I was 
full on manage everything. I was yeah. the mom. I was the associate pastor. I worked all the time. I just managed everything. There was the piano lessons and the violin lessons and the ice skating lessons and the soccer games. And I just, I, I managed everything. I was going 24 seven. So I would run the doomsday scenario, but there was nothing I could do about it because I was stuck on this freeway with thousands of other people in 108 degree heat. So I'm running it, but I'm thinking I can't do anything about this. Right. And I think my response really was to just keep busy. Yeah. Because when the weekend was over, after we knew that everything was fine, the hurricane was gone, it hadn't done much damage, there was a lot of power outages, but everything was fine. And I said, well, if the airport's open on Monday, I, I'm i already scheduled for a flight to South Africa because I have a site visit for a mission team that I'm taking in a year. So I That's got on really a plane cool. and left. Wow. <laughs> like, I, and I, it, because that was work. And I had questions that I wanted to study. I wanted to get, I, I, I was sad that I had left school because by now I had taken 13 years to get my bachelor's degree and I loved school. That's how long it took me to get my associates. (laughs) There you go. 13 years. That's what I'm talking about. (laughs) That's the magic number. It is. Um, But I did, I was good at school Mm -hmm. and I was good at graduate school. And so now I'm putting it all to work and I'm like, I'm working, but I'm having more questions and no one wanted to take the time to dig into the questions. But there was a retired bishop on staff at this church six months out of the year, and he really encouraged me to look at getting another degree. And so I investigated that. And um, in 2007, my daughters and I moved to Boston. And I went to Boston University, and I got a Master of Sacred Theology, which is what's called a second tier master's. You have to have the Master of Divinity to get the Master of Sacred Mm -hmm. Theology. And I used that as a springboard to start PhD work. And at the time, what I really thought I wanted to do was, although I was ordained and I enjoyed being in the church, I thought what I really wanted to do was to be a professor. Mm -hmm. And so I really threw myself into that. And I did all of the coursework. I did the um, comprehensive written exams. I did the oral exam. I did the research, which took me a long time to do all the research. I had to take all this coursework and qualitative methods, and I did really good at that. I loved it. You know, the careful construction of a question and doing audio interviews and then analyzing the data and listening to them again and again to hear what comes up and all of this. Loved this. But when I got into writing up my dissertation, I ran out of money. And then I ran out of time yeah. and I wasn't living in Boston anymore. I had come back to Texas and my second marriage was in a rough spot and I just could not put it together. And the job opportunities were disappearing. So I knew a couple of people who had kind of started at like what would be considered entry level professorship jobs. Mm -hmm. And when they moved up a notch to a higher, you know, a, a tier one university or whatever, the the smaller university never reposted their job. And I was like, well, the job's just disappearing. What's happening with this? So like I'm trained for this ridiculously niche position that no longer exists. 
So the girls had gone off to college and my husband got transferred from out of Houston to Asheville, North Carolina. And I thought, oh, this will be great. This will be a great fresh start. Let's do that. But it takes a long time in the United Methodist system to transfer from one geographic area to the other. Just being ordained in the United Methodist Church doesn't mean you can go anywhere. Uh, You serve a particular geographic region and there's a district superintendent and a bishop and they kind of, it's a whole structure. Wow. So I had to transfer here. Mm -hmm. That's where I am now. I'm a pastor here in Western North Carolina, United Methodist Church. And through a complicated series of things, I got appointed to Big Sandy United Methodist Church in Sandy Mush. And it's what's called a quarter-time appointment. It's what small churches usually can afford. They can't afford a full-time pastor, so you get a half-time or quarter-time. And quarter-time is usually Sunday mornings only. I love these people. And I'm so interested in how they're reaching out to their community. So it's actually a really neat intersection of all of this education that I have and my ability as a teacher and a pastor. They have all of my heart, and I love it. So tell us about Sandy Mush <laughs> and the population, or I can if you don't want to. Well, I mean, I don't know as much as you do, actually, yeah. so I don't, I don't want to generalize. But well, Sandy Mush Valley is this lovely um, agricultural area, and the folks who have grown up there are very clear that Sandy Mush is their home. It's not incorporated. The The folks who've lived there for a long time know exactly what the boundaries are, but I'm new to this area, so I don't always know. I live just outside of Asheville, so I'm close to Sandy Mush, but I'm not in Sandy Mush. This area has many families there that have, for generations, they've been dairy farmers, or they've had cattle, or they've had some other kind of crop that they've grown. It's a lot of tomatoes, I think. I don't know what else. And um, the church was built sometime in the late 1700s, early 1800s. It's not the community center, right? No, the church is in front of the community center. The church came first and was probably used as a school early days. Okay. Many of the Methodist churches out in this area were used as a schoolhouse. Right. And then on Sundays, the church. One of the first clergy for the Methodist movement was Francis Asbury. And there are stories about how he came through this area and did preaching. And so I know that the roots of Methodism go deep in this area. So wait, just a quick little thing. It's fun. Um, so I, I went to the Methodist church. It's the first church I remember yeah. going to as a kid. And my pastor was Doug Asbury. Oh, so I don't know. I mean, if he's like descendant, but that I know cool Asbury is a big name in the Methodist church. It is. Yeah. I actually think he, he, he came out of the closet oh. eventually. And I remember him coming over to dinner at yeah. our house one night and my dad, uh, something happened at this dinner. Yeah. And we never went to that church again. Oh. And I think my dad kind of sniffed out maybe that this pastor was gay and my dad wasn't having any of that. That's possible. Yeah. You know, I mean, one of the weird things about being a pastor is that, and, you know, they told us this 
when we were ordained, we all had mentor pastors. It's a, it's a really good system within the United Methodist Church about how pastors are trained and educated and mentored into, you're questioned a lot. You have to pass a lot of different boards and committees in order to be ordained. The United Methodist Church is really good about training pastors. Going to seminary is your education, but the church also has boards and committees to interview people. Um, to make sure that they are a good fit for ministry, that they're really called by God, that the church is benefiting by their ministry, yeah, um, and that they have good boundaries. Yeah. People need to have good boundaries well, I, all the time, but especially I, pastors. I think that that pastor I was talking about was great. He was a very positive guy. I always enjoyed, like, I don't know if you do this, but I remember when I was a kid, they had the children's time during mm-hmm. the sermon, and the Methodist pastor would have everyone come up to the front and have a little circle. Do they yeah. still do that in yeah. the Methodist church? Yeah. I loved it with him, and he would always have a really cool story to share, and he yeah. was always so smiley and so wonderful to be around. I really liked him. The weird thing about being a pastor that I wanted to really bring out is that you have to be authentic. Mm-hmm. You need to be vulnerable. But when I was being trained, just before I was ordained, I remember that the rest of us who were in my class, those who were being ordained that year, they talked with us about living in a fishbowl, uh, that, that your life is on display and because everybody's watching you. And they kind of go on about this as though you're supposed to kind of police yourself Mm. about how you are in public. So you're supposed to be authentic, but be careful how you're authentic. And uh, it's a little strange. So be a person, but don't be a person. Yeah. I think there's a little (laughs) bit of that that's discussed, but I think probably what your pastor was experiencing is that you really do just need to be who you are. Mm -hmm. And I already have a reputation. There's, you know, I'm a female pastor in a rural community that has only had male pastors. And there's a lot of very conservative Baptist congregations in our area. And in their understanding, the Southern Baptist Convention, not all Baptists are the same, but Mm -hmm. Southern Baptists will not have a woman in a position of leadership. And this harks back to what I experienced with my first husband, because he didn't even want me to teach a Bible study at the campus ministry where I attended, because I was only, as he put it, I was only to teach younger women how to be submissive wives. I could not teach a Bible study to men. Excuse me, I need to go vomit. Yes. (sighs) Now you begin to see why it never crossed my mind to stay, because I was like, no, I'm, I'm a really good teacher. And I love the conversations that come up when you have a lot of varied people in a room because everyone experiences God and the movement of the Holy Spirit in a different way. And so let's talk about that. And what did Jesus really say? I I would like to have a good dialogue about that, not me telling people. So it's weird. Like, okay, what did Jesus really say? Yeah. I'm, my husband and I have had some talks over the years, and especially recently, because we've been dealing with some uh, more conservative family members. Mm-hmm. And we have, I'll just say, at least one of our kids it belongs to the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. I'm not, it's not my position to say who and why right. and what. So I'm not going to go any further than that. But um, they're not a fan of that situation. Yeah. And it's just so funny to me, because I think 
<laughs> if you actually talked to whoever Jesus was, he would be, I mean, I mean, he, I doubt he'd be ashamed of anyone because we're all human, but I do not think that this behavior would be accepted. Mm-hmm. So one of the, the things that occurs to me being a woman clergy uh-huh. in a fairly conservative area is that my church people, my congregation, they're amazing. They're so supportive. They express their gratitude for my sermons, for my Bible studies. And they're older people, you said, right? Um, We have a mix. Okay. Uh, We have a young couple with a baby in the congregation. And then we have some, um, some older folks and, you know, folks that are still working. So it's a mix. But so they've welcomed you as a, as a woman in the church. But other people in the community, especially other pastors that don't go to the church, they do not come to the church, but they have tagged me with a reputation. And so I'm just going to go ahead and lean into it because I have the reputation. And the reputation is that I believe God loves all people. Yeah. All people. I believe that God created all people, that God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus all together were there. And it says in scripture, let us create humankind in our image. Well, we don't know what that image is except for who we see walking around us. And all I know is that scripture says, let there be morning and evening a day. There was the light that's the day and there's the lesser light for the night. But you and I know as we experience that there's dawn, there's twilight, there's dusk, there's shades. It's not like the light comes on and it's daytime and the light goes off and it's nighttime. No, there's this glorious, amazing sky that changes daily there's clouds of varying shapes and sizes, and they mean different things, different weather. There's stars. I love to, to sit out on a summer night and watch meteor showers. There's mysteries in the universe I don't understand. Can't humanity wait, wait, wait. be also diverse and have shades of not the binary? I think maybe so. That is so beautiful what you said. I mean, just if that's the only thing we ever said on this entire podcast, (laughs) that would be worth it. But you're telling me you're a reverend who doesn't know everything? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No. I, I mean, I will tell you absolutely what I believe. Yeah. I believe that God is love. Mm -hmm. I believe that Jesus challenges religious leadership Mm -hmm. and accepts people. And I believe that with every fiber of my being, I could be wrong. Yeah. I mean, some of, so I have friends who are Buddhist. I have friends who are Hindu. I could be completely wrong. We'll find out. I mean, but when you say you believe Jesus questions religious authority, then you're Jesus. Then everyone, I mean, anyone who's doing that is a piece of Mm -hmm. Jesus. Mm -hmm. I mean, right? I, I, when I read, the scripture where Jesus is interrogated by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I remember they were the best educated on. The I don't text. know about the story. The Do Pharisees, you want to tell it a Pharisees little bit? and Sadducees are often quoted in scripture as they're the ones who come to Jesus and be like, which, which law is the most important, you know, or <laughs> doesn't scripture say this or whatever. And, and then Jesus engages in conversations with them. It's there's the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John will all have 
Oh, we've got some we, thunder. We're getting thunder. I love it. Yeah. That's fine. Thunder is cool in the thunder background. Thunder is cool. So I'm like, ooh, I'm talking about the Gospels. Do it. Um, so so the Pharisees and Sadducees, these are the the most highly educated about Scripture. And the way Jewish scholarship was handled at the time was you questioned the text and you asked each other questions and you debated freely. And so they're debating with Jesus. Okay. And Jesus is throwing it back at them and says, oh, yeah, you know the law, but um, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. That sums it all up. Yeah. You know, so. There um, it is. So I have to remember as a highly educated person. Um, as an, a theologian, essentially, because I've, I've got, these are what my degrees are in, right? So I'm a theologian. Well, who would Jesus come and question? Me. <laughs> I'm in religious leadership. And if I sell myself out to benefit with the powers that be, whatever they are, the state or capitalism, then I'm going to get questioned, mm-hmm. right? So Jesus is much more likely to side with the unhoused friends down in Asheville than with me and my friends who are ordained and set aside by the church. Yeah. We're the ones who are going to get questioned. Mm-hmm. So a healthy dose of humility is essential for what I do. Essential for good people in your field. Yes. And I'm, I don't mean to say good or good versus bad, but I'm, what I mean to say is that not all pastors, uh, subscribe to that theory. No, they don't. Much of American Christianity today, and very clear to say it that way, uh, because there are Christians, uh, the majority of Christians today are in the Southern Hemisphere. So Southern Africa, South America. And so that's where Christianity is growing. That's fascinating. And, uh, and, you know, if you were to, if you were to like, average out Christians in the world today would be a woman of color who doesn't speak English. So in American Christianity, there's a little bit of a, it's been warped a little bit because it's very individualistic and it's very focused on, have you accepted Jesus as your savior? And which is like, Jesus isn't really interested if you've accepted him as your savior. Jesus is really interested. Do you love God? Do you love other people? Jesus has already got that you love yourself. Good job. But do you love God and do you love your neighbor? Because if you can do those things. So can you expand on do you love God? Sure. What does loving God mean? Loving God for me really means that I read scripture that I pray, which is more listening for me than speaking. It's very easy to treat God like some cosmic concierge, give me everything I need. Um, oh God, I want, I want. Um, but, but to really lean into the mystery of God to say, I don't understand, but I am experiencing God's care. And so how do I come to understand that for myself? So to love God really kind of it focuses on understanding that I was created in love and leaning into that and then letting that be the foundation of all the things that I do. Right. So in a very weird way, for me, 
composting is part of expressing love for God. Because if I really truly believe that God created all of the universe, then don't I need to be part of restoring this glorious creation that we have? This is the most Asheville pastor thing you've said today. (laughs) I know. You know, I mean, but but honestly, you know, take care of the bees. Plant something that grows here originally so that when the birds come through that they can, you know, sustain. Um, How do we care for the earth? That to me looks like loving God. Being kind to people looks like loving God. This is a tricky one for me. Mm -hmm. Okay. I... Went to school for herbalism. Mm -hmm. I am a triple earth sign in astrology. I love the dirt. I love gardening. I love the earth. I also have three kids Uh and I am incredibly busy. Yeah. And I have had to sacrifice some of my high standards and principles. Yeah. And just go with, you know what? I'll have to make up for it when they grow up because I got to use yeah. some sandwich baggies. I got to like, you yeah. know, like all this very crunchy stuff. And I'm like, my kids are eating Oreos for breakfast. Like, I just like, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I have to think, I think that humans were smart mm. enough. Ooh. <laughs> okay. I'll take that as an answer with that thunder. But I think we're smart enough. And I think that eventually we will figure out a way to fix our mistakes. Yeah. And as far as like the things that we've done that are creating this poor air quality right now all over right. the US. And that's I, a tricky one for me because I really wish that I I could have the bandwidth to do all the earth friendly things. But right. I mean, and then there's people who are working three jobs. Yeah, they can't even begin to think about the earth, no. you know, so how so in those situations, yeah. what I would say is, what does loving God look like? Yeah. Loving God looks like giving yourself a break. Yeah. Um, what if you can't? What if you can't? What if you have a bunch of kids at home you got to take care of and you got to right. work those jobs? So, so to- can you give yourself a break for not composting that week? Oh, yes. Okay. Right? Yeah. So if you're working three jobs, which I have done in the last three years, yeah. to, to, to work two or sometimes three jobs at a time. Right. So, like, how do you give yourself a break in that situation to say, I can't. Yeah. It is not humanly possible to do it all. That is also honoring the fact that you are created by the divinity that says you are not always the things you do. That is not all that you are. You are not the things that have happened to you. You're more than that. And you have to look at the broader sweep of your life to say, have there, have there been things, opportunities that I missed? Yeah. I mean, let's face it. I'm sitting here talking about love of God and love of neighbor and I'm twice divorced. Come on. I've got a few mistakes in my past. <laughs> um, cause I, I wasn't able to repair those relationships and it's well, not the only ones. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, it takes. It takes two in a it marriage. You have two. to have two people willing to grow and learn together. And That's if it's true. not there, then there's nothing one person can do to make the other person exactly. do that. Exactly. But that was a commitment I made. Yeah. And so what I'm saying is that I have to look at the bigger sweep of things right. to say, all right, so love of God doesn't mean being perfect. Right. In yeah. whatever measure that you have in your head about what that is, because a lot of people have a lot of different measures for what perfect is, right? 
So you have to give yourself a break. And that's part of loving God to say, I am worthy. Yeah. Right. So if you're really, really hard on yourself, that's not going to help you move out of a place of kind of this gracious expansiveness. It just helps you to move from a place of judgment because you're judging yourself. Yep. Yeah. I think as far as, uh, (laughs) so, so crunchy in Asheville, but as far (laughs) as me and the plastic baggies go, uh, there was a moment where I was like, well, I just cannot, like I, I had to get rid of shame in my life altogether. And that was part of it. I'm like, I just cannot be judging myself right now. Like there's just too much going on. And when I, had to throw in the towel on a lot of my like more earth friendly activities and just be okay with doing what I could do. That was the same time when I learned about getting rid of shame. Yep. You know, and uh, I think actually this wonderful woman who I used to work with, uh, she gave me this little uh, infographic and it had guilt or it had healthy guilt unhealthy guilt and shame categories. Yeah. And I'm not sure if I put it on Instagram, but I will so that everyone can look at it because that was so helpful. It yeah. gave examples of like, okay, healthy guilt is when we've made a mistake mm-hmm. and we feel not great about it because we probably should feel not great about it. And then we go make amends. Mm-hmm. And then unhealthy guilt is like codependence kind of like, you yeah. know, you feel guilty for things like, really you shouldn't feel guilty for like it's not your it's not your problem it's not for you to be dealing with it's for another person to be dealing Mm -hmm. with and then of course shame is you're a bad person you know very uh self-hate talk stuff and so reading through the examples on that list was just a, a total game changer kind of like Years and years and years before that, I read something about being passive, assertive, or aggressive. Yes. And that was a game changer because I was very passive. Yeah. And so learning to become assertive. But as a woman, Mm -hmm. for the younger women, because I think like once you reach your 40s and beyond, like assertiveness is a non-issue anymore for most people. I mean, some still need to deal with it. But for the younger women, being assertive is feels like being a bitch. Yes. Because you're being direct and you're not taught to be direct as a young woman, at least in our generations, that was not a thing. And how dare you, the nerve of you to say what you really think. I mean, I've been called a bitch more than, more than a few times in my life. Um, (laughs) And so, yeah, and one really epic day by my ex-husband and my then current husband, it was like super awesome to be called a bitch by both of them. And I was like, (laughs) fantastic, maybe I'm telling you both the truth. To be assertive and to own who I am as a clergywoman in a rural space where my authority is not acknowledged, not respected, I'm judged for it, and I'm still trying to be gracious, uh, which sometimes comes off as passive. Like trying to figure that out is tough. Yeah. Most of the talk that goes on about me goes on behind my back. Is it social media or a little bit? Yeah. Okay. Um, but I was judged for things I've put on social media. I know that there's people in the community who have researched me to find out what have I said. And I love the community that I have around me on social media. Mm -hmm. 
So when I divorced my first husband, I lost contact with all my nieces and nephews and a lot of them have come back. (gasps) Yay. And you know, that that's a really good group of people. They've discovered in me someone who's not evangelical, someone who's not conservative Catholic, just says, God made you and I love you. And we're good with that. So if I'm going to get judged for that, if I'm going to get judged because I love my nephew who's out and proud, and he's been with his partner for three or four years, if I'm gonna get judged for that, okay, fine. Yeah. Now, I don't like uh, wear t-shirts with that when I go places, but that's what funny I- you mentioned that because I actually have t-shirts in my cart right now. Yeah. And I've been debating because I'm about to spend more time with some of these conservative people. Yeah. And I'm like, I feel weird. Like I want to. It almost feels like it's going to provoke a confrontation. Yes, exactly. So the way that expresses itself for me as a clergy woman in a rural space is I wear a clergy shirt with a clergy collar, which a lot of people look at that and go, "Aren't don't only Catholics do that? But Episcopalians and United Methodists also wear clergy shirts. Yep. And so I have a few and they're colorful and pretty. And I wear my little clergy collar. So when I go to a public meeting where I am representing my church, where the thing I'm doing is I am Reverend Lisa Beth, and I got a booth, and I'm telling you about the church, or I'm attending a meeting. Um, so there was uh, several public safety meetings about a year and a half ago when we had some arsons in the area. And so I wore my clergy collar to those meetings because my churches, these are people who have barns that were also, you know, they were, people were nervous about their barns being burned down. And, but they also wanted to help their neighbors rebuild their barns or resource, where can they get hay? Or did they lose some equipment? How do we help them? And so I was representing my church at this public meeting, series of meetings, so that I could bring the information back to my church members I know there were it's, there were other men who were introduced, you know, oh, let's welcome brother so-and-so, the deacon. And I'm like, that's fantastic. So I, you know, I know that my authority as a religious leader is not acknowledged. They didn't introduce it's you. It's like I'm invisible. That, like I'm not going to be asked to be part of things. On the other hand, there's a whole lot of people who are not going to church anywhere because they've had a negative experience with religion mm-hmm. and they will talk with me. Yeah. So I'm, I have to walk this line that says, this is who I am authentically and be yeah. vulnerable, mm-hmm. you know, be myself, be my fishbowl self. Go ahead. You want to look, you want to look, yeah. you want to judge <laughs> might as well. But these other people are having a good conversation with me Yeah. about what is faith really about? How does it really affect your daily life? Yeah. How do you love God and other people? What does it mm-hmm. look like? Does it look like helping someone resource their hay out here? Yeah, it really does. So first to just comment on that, having someone like you in this community where there could be people that don't feel they belong. Mm-hmm. You you could be literally just saving lives, being your authentic self, yeah. because the, people might feel so lost. And to see someone to be being real, it could mean everything to them. And then another thought I had as far as loving God and what, it, of course, right now I'm thinking what that means to me. Yeah, 
because I I don't go to uh, Christian church. I mean, I grew up in cr- multiple different Christian churches and Catholic and all that, but I I don't have any feelings against kind Christians, right. you know. But for me, I think loving God, and when I say God, it's whatever the yeah. higher power you feel is. Because for a long time, actually, I couldn't even say the words God or Jesus. Yeah. Because the church was so hard for me to yes. get over. It can be really toxic. But I, I got to a place where it's it's a different definition for me now. For me, it's realizing that there's something else out there or in there, mm-hmm. <laughs> one or the other, uh, that knows, has a knowing, mm-hmm. and that I offer myself to the knowing. Yeah. That I offer my services, my energy to that. Now, of course, I can't always be conscious of that. And I'm just, I don't know, doing random things all the time. But when I am conscious of it, I'm say, oh, yeah, I'm here to do whatever it is. And, you know, the title of my podcast is Born by Accident. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes, I think, what do people think? They must think that I think, you know, like, I'm not supposed to be here. Mm-hmm. Well, that may be actually true. I feel like, you know, maybe there is a, like, to make a, a picture of it, maybe there's this giant hole in the floor of the spiritual world, and there's all these spirits hanging out, and maybe I just tripped and fell in the hole, and I became a zygote, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and like, oh, oops, here I am, you know, yeah. on the field trip again, you know, and, or for once. Uh, it doesn't mean I'm not going to make the most of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I definitely do not believe that my parents purposely conceived me. Right. But it doesn't mean that the other realm of whatever is happening didn't purposely do that to put me here. Yeah. You know, and I think, well, I must be here for something. So yeah. whatever it is. I just keep following my gut at this point, and that's mm-hmm. the best I can do. So if my gut says, make a podcast, I'm just <laughs> going to do it, even though some days it's very like, am I really still doing this? Like, I'm going to yeah. do it again? Okay, I'm doing it again because I'm supposed to. My gut is telling me to do that. So that is loving God to me, yeah. trusting in my gut feelings about something because gut feelings are so mysterious. Yeah. So there's... um Every now and then there'll be a scripture about your heart. Uh, Do you feel something in your heart? Um, And I I am the worst for tagging scripture and like quoting whatever it was. I'm the worst at that. I have to look it up. This is why I have so many books. (laughs) I don't do the memorization thing. So the thing I wanted to say about the heart is that in many languages where that is translated is, is more your gut. Interesting. Which, yeah. So, so you know, let some of your past ponder on that, where you've been had scripture verses thrown at you, probably out of context. But a lot uh-huh. of times, it is your gut. And I can't say that there is anything in my experience with the text that we have that we call scripture today, or anything else that I have read that says that God chooses particular people to be in particular families. I haven't, I don't, I don't have anything that would back that up. Mm -hmm. What I do know is that there are people who are in families that are wonderful and they have a fabulous experience. And there are others that are in families where they feel like they're the only one that's not nuts. (laughs) 
And then there are others that are in these horribly toxic situations. Yeah. And I'm like, did that, did God intend for that baby to be there? I don't think so. I don't think God is capricious and sends people into horrific situations. Mm-hmm. I think humans are really good enough at doing terrible things to each other and also wonderful things to right. and for each other. Right. And so um, I think what my role is, is to hear people share their stories of where they've been in awful, toxic situations, how have they come through it, how have they healed, just hear it to receive it, to let them unburden themselves, and then to be a community of people who are doing the other thing, the good thing, the giving back thing, and be less about knowing all the right answers and more about just leaning into love. What if it is love that you can't see, that we can only experience in relationship with other people and with the earth, what if it's love that is the thing that's holding everything together? Um, and, and having been hurt a lot of times myself, wounded, to still believe in love is an act of faith, almost defiant faith, I would say, to say that we can be good to each other as humans. We really can. And that fundamental truth leads me to what are considered radically progressive ideas. Because <laughs> oh. if you're going to be kind to all of God's children, yeah. oh my gosh, that opens it up to, you know, people who don't look like me, who don't speak like me, who aren't born in this particular place. Do you have any idea how someone can move from a place of religious boundaries mm-hmm and rules and formats to a more open place of acceptance. Because I know a lot of people, that would be very difficult because what's the word for it? When you have to like change your whole belief system. So it's- You have to deconstruct what you have. Now, I will say um, there's a whole movement for people who were in the evangelical church. Um, a lot of times it's hashtagged ex-evangelical or uh, deconstruction because they're taking apart the toxic structures that they were given. Now, to do that, to take apart the things that you were taught, that the hierarchy and patriarchy, that whole – like. July 4th is very close to a Sunday this year, so I can only imagine how that's going to be celebrated in many churches to, to kind of take that apart, to say, is that, is, to look at that with a critical eye. And in, and in this sense, I'm using the term critical as an academic term. Right. Uh, to, to take something and look at it carefully and question it thoroughly, to do that. You have to have a really strong faith because a lot of times what looks like a really strong faith is actually built on this, this hierarchy, the hierarchy of patriarchy and all too often capitalism and 
patriotism in the United States. It's all kind of this one big mushy thing. And it, it looks solid, but it's really not. Because if you take any one, it's like Jenga, you take one big chunk of it out and say, you know, and Jesus didn't have anything to do with America. Well, that's a big enough piece. Let's take that piece out. The whole rest of the Jenga tower is going to come down. Mm -hmm. So like one of my concerns for my first husband, who's, I mean, up to his eyeballs in this belief, if you take out any one of those pieces, it deconstructs everything he has put his faith on. So that's going to be very, very hard for him. Mm -hmm. I don't know that he's ever going to be able to say God is love for all people. I I don't know that he's ever going to get there. And I know how he got to this rigid belief because he was so uncertain in himself. Yeah. And he was looking for Ah, the structure. Yes. So... Asking someone to step away from that very rigid structure, the very rigid beliefs means that you have to have a really solid belief in God to say, God is love and Jesus is this amazing gift of grace and the Holy Spirit is moving and I don't understand that at all. And it's okay. Oh my gosh. Like to have that is that, that's a really, uh, you have to be very strong in your, in your, I don't knows. Yeah. And be okay with that. Yeah. A bigger faith in not knowing. Exactly. Oh my gosh. That's a really great way of putting it that I haven't thought of before. It's, it's a, it's more of a faith. Yeah. I mean, not to say one is better or worse because who knows I think anything. my faith is stronger because yeah. I'm less certain yeah. of a lot of things. Yeah. It's like the more you, the more you know, the more you don't know or whatever exactly. it is. Like, you know, as soon as you yes. know, you don't know anything, you're more wise or whatever, you know. It's, <laughs> well, I don't know if I'm any more wise. I'm, I'm more of a <laughs> – I'm more of a wise ass. There's that. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I'm, I have much more fun with my faith now. Yeah. Yeah. Every now and then I'll, I'll read a passage of scripture and I'll put it into my own voice. And my daughters used to call it the Lisa Beth revised standard version. Cause I'll be like, we know what Jesus is really saying is don't be a dick. And yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. <laughs> like, which I shouldn't do that with scripture, but, but it makes much more sense to people when you put it that way. Do love you say God, that? love your neighbor as yourself. The Jesus, don't be a dick. You know, so it, when you put it like that, people can kind of go, Oh, yeah. That's what that means. Yeah. I mean, oh. sometimes we just got to put it into everyday language. I'm so happy that you are here and doing the work that you're doing because <laughs> Christianity desperately needs more people like you. Although I don't go to church, I've been there. Mm-hmm. And I know people in the church. I'm happy some people are involved in the church for their own sakes compared to like what else could be for them. And I think that people like you will really shift the whole country, if not world, if we can get more pastors and preachers or whatever you want to call it yeah. to open up more and to be more accepting of all people. Yeah. Just like Jesus probably was. Well, small churches like the one I'm serving now do a lot of good in their Mm -hmm. communities, and they need to have pastors who nurture them to be the vital community that they are. So, you know, we talked about Sandy Mush and the church having been there before the school was there, which is now the community center, that the church and the community center work together in a beautiful way 
to take care of the people in this unincorporated, gorgeous rural part of Western North Carolina. And if that church was to disappear, then those people, um, if, if, there, if they didn't have a pastor there to care for them and nurture them and try to grow the church just a little bit, just one or two people would be great to do that, then they would have less support to care for their community. So you see it, it just, everything is a, is a pebble in a pond that ripples out. And so I just look at myself as one of those pebbles that's been thrown in mm-hmm. this place at this time. Dude, I was going to say it's no big deal, but it it kind of it's a big deal to the people that I'm pastoring and that's important to me. Is it your plan for now to stay for a while or are you just kind of in the wind yeah. with whatever happens? Um so in the United Methodist Church, the saying is you serve at the pleasure of the bishop. Uh so the bishop and the district superintendents in your area determine where you serve. And as an elder, which is my official terminology in the in the hierarchy, I'm an elder and I am in full connection. So according to our structure, they have to give me a full-time appointment, a full-time job. But oh. in order to do that, I have to be willing to itinerate. I need to be open to moving. And I own this home where I live out here near to Sandy Mush. And I love these people. And the work that I'm doing with them is such a really great fit for the education and the gifts that I have mm-hmm. that I I have asked to stay as quarter time. So I have oh. asked to kind of be a little bit out of the structure so that I can yeah. stay. The trick is finding a living wage job that gives me the weekday income that will allow me to keep doing this on the weekends. And... I have a weekday job right now, but it doesn't quite pay a living wage. So, and living wage out here is, you know, in the Asheville area, it's just over $20 an hour. That's a hard thing to find. Yeah. So a lot of this is contingent upon the weekday income. Yeah. And so we'll see how it goes. Like I said, this is the, this is the great, I don't know yet. (laughs) So what are you doing? For your regular day job? Um, I am doing medical billing, Wow, which is a thing I learned just nine months ago. Mm-hmm. I had never done it before. Um, for two years, I was a private teacher mm-hmm. to siblings through the pandemic. So I taught everything, grades five through eight. I taught mm. all subjects. I was the teacher, school nurse, the principal on occasion, <laughs> sometimes the cafeteria worker. They got a new puppy in the middle of that. So I was also the train the kids, how to train the puppy person. And that was a great gig. And I loved that. I loved teaching those kids. It was wonderful. But then the pandemic ended and they needed to go back to public school. So that's how I landed the other job. Okay. And we're not going to get into it today, but I know you have another story about something that happened during the pandemic. Yeah. It's a little raw right now. It is. It is a little raw right now. But, you know, that'd be a great long conversation about what does it mean to be codependent? Because let me tell you, I have a gold star in codependency. (laughs) (laughs) I can't really talk about that. (laughs) Do you know what's interesting that I heard somewhere recently and... We are all raised by default codependently. Yeah. Because as kids, we have to depend on our parents. Yeah. And so everyone has to unlearn codependence. 
Yeah, it's just that some of us learned it better than others. For sure, and for didn't sure, for even sure. Acknowledge that that's what was going on. Yeah, yeah. No, my mother didn't have boundaries. Right. Like just didn't. Yeah. So <laughs> I get that. I get that. <laughs> yeah. I would love to talk with you some other time about that. That'd be a great conversation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the other is still a little raw and uh-huh. I'm a big advocate for get yourself a good therapist and I just need to work on myself a little bit more before I can have that conversation. Yeah. Well, I'll be looking forward to it and Yay. thank you for sharing all of yourself with us today and I am excited for people to hear what you have to say. And I'm so happy for the people of Sandy Mush that they have you. Oh, thanks. This has been a real pleasure. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Uh, Have a great week, everyone. If you want to say anything to Reverend Lisa Beth, you can email me at bornbyaccidentpodcast at gmail.com, and I will pass it along to her. You can follow me on Instagram at bornbyaccidentpodcast, and make sure you subscribe and share. And hey, if you want to tell your story, uh, I'm open. I have a few more spots for this season and just get in touch and we can talk about anything you want. Uh, Love you guys. Have a great week.